Man, did you see that 24 fireball blasted you in the face with? It was awesome. <laughs> yeah, like, how fun was that? I just got to draw, like, seven cards that I wanted every turn for, like, four turns. And I don't really know why you were still playing, because, like, like, you had obviously lost seven turns earlier, but it was pretty awesome. <laughs> That's not the conversation they want to be having. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to episode 50 of Horde of Notions. I'm your host, Chris. With me tonight, just so far, two of the regular hosts. First of all, we have Adina. Hello, everybody. And, of course, the man who loves the squirrels, it's Travis. Hey, how's everybody doing? Back with us tonight for a one-off appearance on episode 50. On the show he started, Jackson, Antonio, Sabato, De La Hoya, King Kong, Bundy, where have you been, LaCroix? I wasn't ever gone, Chris. I just had the mic muted for a bit. Like 30 episodes? Uh, it happens. Right. <laughs> we have a very special guest with us tonight. Uh, someone our listeners have been asking for for quite a while. Widely regarded as the best deck builder on the planet. It's Sam Black. Hi, Sam. How are you? Hi. You were saying earlier that you would dispute the claim to be the greatest. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Shout is better. <laughs> You're pretty sure who's better? Shanta? Oh, yeah, well, <laughs> that, uh, yeah, the the Eternal Command deck he built for uh, the Players' Championship was something else. Yeah, I mean, he's just been, like, as far as I know, building all his decks basically by himself and, like, winning 90% of his constructed matches at, like, every PT. So I don't really know how anyone else can compete with that. Well, I guess it's because... He's not really in, in... He's not in North America. And yeah, he doesn't, I think he doesn't speak English very well. Well, yeah. But he doesn't travel as much as some of the other Japanese players, either. Not as much, but more than a lot. I mean, he does get around a bit, even if you don't see him at every Grand Prix ever. I mean, it's certainly hard to do, and he's done remarkably well in Asian Grand Prix and everything, and on Magic Online. Yeah, and the, the man... if. Someone said if he upped his limited win percentage by 15%, he'd have 12 PT top 8s or something like that. <laughs> that sounds believable. Which is kind of scary when you think that John only has 13, I think. Uh, only has 13. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like Way to discount there, Chris. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, in comparison, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, Shota's number of... Like, top 16s is absurd, but he's not in the Hall of Fame because everyone cares about top 8s. Which uh, has probably kept a couple of people out. But, I, I mean, if he's if he's learned to draft, the rest of the world is in trouble. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he'll figure it out eventually, I'm sure. So if we can just start with a couple of basics, Sam. When did you get into Magic? What was the set, and what brought you in? Uh, well, as for when, I think it was roughly May of 94. Uh, my first Ooh. set was revised. Um and my uh, best friend's older brother taught us all together at my house one day. Uh, he remembers it differently, but I'm more confident in my memory than his, because <laughs> I know a number of texts that contradict his version. <laughs> so we're going to go with mine. Okay, seems fine. And did you start competitive straight away, or did it take a little while to get into that scene? Well... I mean, that's an interesting question, since competitive was somewhat hard to define at that point. Sure. Um, I mean, 
I played in local tournaments not very long after I learned how to play, but I was also like 11 or 12, um, probably 12 when I played in my first tournaments. And so, I mean, like the first tournament I ever played in, I played like my red, green, and black cards, and I was really hoping that I could borrow my friend's Vivictus Osmati, which I had never actually seen before, but sounded like it would probably be pretty sweet. Um, <laughs> and, I mean, like, this was, you know, a time when I won my first match with that deck. Um, sure. I don't really remember what happened or anything. I know that in the second round, I played against someone who... Uh, later was like the highest rated player in Illinois for a while. I grew up in the Chicago area, um, and he just like destroyed me with like a bunch of moxes and balances and mistress factories and cards I'd never seen before that interacted favorably. Um, and you know, you know, fat cards, right? Again, <laughs> he, he was playing like a good type one deck for the time against like a sealed deck, um, but. Like a sealed deck for a girl who didn't know how to evaluate cards. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and so like when you when the Pro Tour started and people like uh, you know, um, okay, who run the first Pro Tour? I can't even remember his name now. Well, so I when know. the Pro Tour started, um, like I played in what might have been one of the first ever Type Two tournaments. Um, when the format was defined, when the format was like revised, dark and fallen or something, I basically resisted playing real formats for a while. I was like a vintage purist, except those names didn't exist. Um, <laughs> and so, like, I didn't play in PTQs for quite a while, and I never played on the JSS because I had no idea how to, like where tournaments were or how to find them or anything like that, despite being the appropriate age for a long time. Um, sure. So I didn't really play, like, PTQs until, like, Masks Block Constructed. Um, I top my second PTQ ever in that format and top a couple of PTQs in Masks Block Constructed. Wow, so straight into the top, basically, once you started getting in there. Uh, I mean, straight into the you know, moderate PTQ player level, but <laughs> remained for many years. So I guess, were you looking up to people like Finkel and Kai at the time, or uh, were they just competition? Neither. Um, okay. Like, I wasn't following coverage enough for them to be the people I was, like, really looking at. Um, I mean, I'd heard of them, and they sounded like they were really good and everything, but, uh, you know, I was, like... As far as, like, the people that I looked up to when I was getting into competitive magic, it was more like the local players who were good. Um, sure. And then, uh, you know, I played much... I, like, didn't have great access to competitive magic for a lot of the time that I was playing, basically. Um, and especially during college, I was playing a lot of, like, casual magic, just, like, in the dorms and stuff but I wasn't really getting to tournaments very often. Um, and so it wasn't until I graduated from college that I, like, really got into uh, playing and following competitive magic. So when the... Uh, I'm going to jump forward a lot here and, and go to the formation of uh, SCG Black, is which... <laughs> yeah, but it, that's why I was asking about playing about people like John and Kai. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that must have been some feeling to, to sit down with 
probably the two greatest players ever to pick up a magic card and have them be looking to you for a deck list. Yeah, absolutely. It's very strange to just like suddenly accidentally end up working with those guys and then to like a number of days before the tournament when I don't know what deck I'm going to play have John Finkel say, well, I'm just going to play whatever Sam plays. And I'm like, but the last deck I was working on was just terrible. Like, why are you moving in on whatever I end up with? <laughs> I mean, the, the, I can't even imagine the, hearing those words from his mouth. I can't imagine hearing those words from anybody's mouth. <laughs> Nobody wants to play my decks, which is probably a good thing, actually. Um, but yeah, that, that's, I can't even imagine how that feels. So yeah, that must be, that must be amazing. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, I've had a very similar experience with, like, no one ever wants to play my decks. I mean, like, I've built a number of, or I had built a number of, like, successful decks that no one ever played before anyone else played any of my decks. Um, and so it was very weird to, like, suddenly be in a position where not only other people were going to play my decks, but I knew in advance that specific, very respectable other people were going to. Well, I know, Jack, you said you were a big fan of one of Sam's decks. Which, uh, which list was that? Back when I actually still played standard and competitive, uh, you had a fairies list that you'd come up with, and I had forgotten what tournament it was. And Sam, I just want you to know, I won probably three months straight off that list at our local F&M. <laughs> it sounds like it's not the kind of deck I'd really take credit for. It's just a build of fairies, but uh, yeah, I, 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 I like I said, it was fairies. Yeah, I, I want to say. I mean, it was you know five years ago, and I can barely remember last week. But there was a list either you assisted in and you headlined, or you had built yourself with fairies, I think. And yeah, I, I won for three months straight off that thing. And I've, it's nice to finally have an opportunity to tell you that. <laughs> oh, well, I'm I'm glad it worked for you. Was that? Uh, out of curiosity, do you know if that was uh, pre or post uh, Jay Spellerin getting added to the deck? It was, I believe, before that really caught on. <laughs> I mean, people were still trying to f- finagle around. There were a couple of us using Ponder and stuff like that, but it just it never seemed to catch on. And then I added Jace to the list probably towards the tail end of that three months before I gave it up in favor of something else. Oh, okay. Um yeah, I was playing without Jace for a long time, and then in Worlds, when I was playing Fairies, I played against uh, Masashi Oiso, and he j- destroyed me with Jace, and uh, like, seeing how he played with it really taught me like what the card is supposed to do in the deck, and just like a lot about what's going on in Fairies in general and stuff, and after that, I never caught Jace from any various deck, including like other formats. Oh, same here. Um, when I went to GP Atlanta a couple of years ago for what was probably the last major extended event, um, it immediately went in there. It just it fit the curve too nicely. Yeah. I'm so glad I missed the whole fairies thing. I have a feeling that <laughs> Vendillion Click and Bitter Blossom and Mistbind Click would have just driven me to distraction. In a lot of ways, it was bad. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it was bad, but it wasn't as bad as people made it out to be. No, it was worse. <laughs> oh. Was it as bad as now when somebody sits down and says, oh, I'm playing Delver? Oh, oh yeah, it was much worse. <laughs> Thoughtseize into Bitter Blossom, it just felt like there was no point in finishing the game. Well, I don't know. I survived Academy, so. <laughs> <laughs> so we have been joined by our final co-host. Uh, Will has joined us. Say hi, Will. Hi, Will. Hi, 
Were you expecting anything else? <laughs> no, I, I shouldn't have really, should I? I, so, I, I? I disagree on the whole fairies thing. I have lost one uh, match in my lifetime against fairies, whether it be in standard, extended, uh, or even modern. I don't know. It's 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 just another deck. Like yeah, thought season to bitter blossom sucks, but it can still be beaten. <laughs> See, fairies was the one time I finally broke down and said, okay, that deck is just so good, I have to play it. And I still did miserably with it. Well, see, like Chris, right? Like, you couldn't not play Academy. It was just staring at you. You're like, well, this card seems obnoxiously good. I guess I have to play it. Did uh, Did you play Academy, Sam, or did you dodge it? Uh, so that was during a time when I wasn't really playing Standard. Um, I did, like, play a little bit of Vintage with Academy. Um just like online like on Apprentice um and uh that deck was you know like one on the first turn like 80% of the time yeah <laughs> there was nothing fair about that deck yeah true story the first card I ever bought online was Tolarian Academy I signed up for eBay just to get a Tolarian Academy <laughs> that's how good I, that card was there is some chance that the first card that I like bought online as Rabbit Wombat. <laughs> I mean, no, that's, that's much more awesome than an Academy. <laughs> well, I guess, no, it wouldn't have even been on... I distinctly remember making phone calls to stores that were not local to price Rabbit Wombat when I was, like, 12. <laughs> I don't know if I ended up, like, ordering one or not. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually um, be at the hands of wombats many times. <laughs> There's a guy I used to to play magic with uh, locally who actually is the spitting image of Rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, passed out drunk one night, and we took some shaving foam and put it around his mouth and took pictures. And yeah, it, <laughs> it was pretty scary, actually. Uh, the um, probably the deck that brought you catapulting to the front of people's at, uh, attention for deck building was the uh, the mono blue poison deck at SCG, uh, not SCG, at Proto Philadelphia, the first modern event. Uh, how on earth did you ever come up with um, Blazing Shoal discarding, I think, was, was it Dragonstorm you were using? Yeah. Uh, like, John how Stoltz did you get that? Uh, yeah, John Stoltzman is the answer. Um He's a friend of mine who used to live in Madison and uh, moved to L.A. for poker. Um, and we were working on uh, Storm, um, designed by Ben Dempsey, a local uh, Madison player. Um, and one day, John Stoltzman just messaged me on Magic Online and said, Hey, I'm working on this deck. Uh, do you want to play some games? And I'm like, sure. And... Uh, you know, like, I went off on turn two with the Storm deck and beat him the first game we played. Um, and then we played some more games, and he actually got to do his thing. And he was like, so what do you think of this deck? And I'm like, uh, I have no idea. Is it good? <laughs> um, and so he sent me the list, and his initial build needed a lot of refining. Like, um, he was playing, like, Remand and Giga Drowse and was basically, like, too slow, didn't have enough, like, Ponder and Preordain type effects. Um, but basically all I did with that deck is um, took the card manipulation shell from our Storm deck and put it into 
the um, combo finish from John's poison deck, um, and like tested it and tweaked it to get the numbers right. That was actually much more a deck that I like fine tuned and you know like I played like Jerry's role in building that deck uh, rather than one where I just like had an idea and put it all together. There is kind of an interesting story about how that original idea came to be, but it's very much like John's deck and John's story. Like, he was actually trying to kill people with uh, Blazing Shoal discarding Greater Gargadon while attacking with Warren Instigator um, in a Goblin <laughs> shell. <laughs> Sounds like my kind of deck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like a Goblin shell inspired by, like, my Goblin deck that I won a car with, or won the Win a Car tournament with, that... Uh, like, he knew about that deck and liked that deck from that tournament and had played it online and stuff, and he was like, well, now I can play with, like, Greater Gargadon and Sea Chain Commander again. Like, let's see what I can do with this in Modern. And somehow where he went with it was, well, I have these Greater Gargadons in my deck, and, like, Warren Instigator seems sweet with Sea Chain Commander, so what if I put some Blazing Shoals in and try to, like, Blazing Shoal Gargadon on people with this, like, Warren Instigator? And then he was like, well, these goblins aren't that great, but this blazing shuttle kill is pretty good. I wonder what else I can do that with. And then he found Ink Moth Nexus, and then just, like, moved more and more toward, hey, maybe I should just be killing people with blazing shuttle instead of, like, playing these red cards. Um. (laughs) (laughs) I remember... It's never good until you add blue mana. (laughs) (laughs) I just I wanted to hear a little bit more about this whole win a car thing because <laughs> I've never been to a tournament where the prize was a car. Uh, so so what was that all about? Uh, it was a side event at Worlds in I think 2006. Um, they just had a like basically they wanted more people to come to Worlds for public events and stuff. Uh, this was when they were going the opposite direction of where they've settled now with having uh, closed PTs and stuff, and they were just like, not enough people are coming to these events, what can we do to like get the public out so that they can like see pros and stuff? Now they've figured out they can just show pros off online. Um, and so they said, well, let's just have like this big like tournament to excite people. Well, what would be an exciting prize? I don't know, how about a car that's covered in like magic logos and stuff? Um, and so there was like this tournament where the prize was a car covered in like magic logos um, and you could play in a tournament to win this car by like doing well in or like winning a different side event the weekend of worlds um, and then like there were uh, like a number of tournaments that were listed as like room tournaments or something and if you won a room tournament you got to play a 36 person standard tournament to win a car um so I won, like, a, I don't know, like, 180-person, or, well, was one of the, like, top two players in a, like, 180-person sealed deck room tournament for, like, an iPhone. Um, and that qualified me for the win-a-car tournament, and um, I played a very weird goblin deck that I built that basically no one ever played. Um, this was the same weekend as uh, the... Um, famous uh, match, mirror match between Shapen and Seafoot Dragonstorm. So it was that standard format. Um, the uh, Worlds that was won by Yuri Pelig with, like, 
the green black deck. Um, yep. So instead of playing those decks or playing uh, ramp, I was playing like marsh splitter and mud button torch runner. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Said nobody ever. <laughs> uh, won this like thirty-six person standard tournament where the prize was theoretically this car, but in reality. Um, you could take $20,000 or take the car, and if you wanted to take the car, you had to, like, pick it up in New York later after doing a bunch of paperwork and all these other different reasons that it didn't make any sense to actually take the car. Um, so presumably they just, like, took the magic decals off and gave it back to the dealer and uh, gave me a check for $20,000. Oh, Because not rolling down the street in a magic mobile? I was sad that I'm not... Did they at least give you the stickers that you could put on your own car? <laughs> <laughs> no, you actually had to give them back 5000 for them not to give you the stickers. <laughs> so the car shaped very differently than the car that I had just bought at the time, though. So I don't know how well that would work. <laughs> I just can't imagine driving down, like, showing up at a party or something in a magic logo car. <laughs> Like automatic relegate into the corner. <laughs> Great. C twenty spinners on the rims. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, wow. Well. You, you think that would be embarrassing? I would think that would make as a confident individual, and it would probably attract quite a number of ladies, sir. Yeah. The right kind of ladies. The ones that think all the magic logos are cool, and they're like, "Oh wow, you're into magic? Oh, you must be really smart. Cool." Or, "Oh wow, you have gainful employment. Let me talk to you." <laughs> He's a keeper. I don't know if people generally assume that being into magic means having gainful employment. That's very true. <laughs> I, mean, I guess it depends on what steps out of the car, really, when the door opens. <laughs> Does this car have working brakes? <laughs> Do both headlights work? After uh, after Pro Tour Philly, I guess the next big deck was the Spirits deck at... Uh, at Pro Tour uh, no, Barcelona. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, wait, no. The Spirits deck was... Dark Ascension. Other, the other Spirits deck was Barcelona. I mean, I guess they were both Spirits decks, but, it, I mean, the next one was Honolulu. Yeah, and uh, that one sort of almost went to the all the way. If, yeah. You know, if, if wolves weren't unblockable, uh, <laughs> yes, if, who knows? If blocking a wolf was legal play... <laughs> so, I mean, we had John on not long before uh, Proto Dark Ascension. I don't think at that point he was even 100% to go. Okay. But, I mean, he's been asked several times about the block. What were you thinking when he didn't block? I was very frustrated. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember saying not long afterwards that it, it's probably uh, the way it was explained by everybody afterwards was that it was mathematically the correct play but it's the kind of play where a worse player would not have made that play and would have won as a result so people a worse player wouldn't have been in that in the finals though. <laughs> a worse player would have been eliminated way before that People did a lot of reverse engineering to try to justify Finkel's decision and like find ways to be like well it's John he must have been right all of that stuff is like just people saying things to want to believe that not blocking was just wrong. Like I talked to John about it right after it happened. Like it was just a mistake. He wasn't playing around anything by not blocking. Like <laughs> I've heard all these like various stories about, well, no, he was playing around Inferno Titan. The mana didn't work out that way. Like he actually didn't win 
any more games to any combination of cards by not blocking than by blocking. Well, I mean, not many people would have put uh, Kibler on triple Galvanic Blast anyway. Yes, like, it's very reasonable to just be like, well, I can't figure out anything he could have that would make it matter what I do here. But, like, if you actually think through every possible thing that could be happening, blocking there is right. It's certainly one of those plays where it's, you know, not going to change your win percentage by an appreciable margin ever. But, right. um, like, he did make the technically wrong play and get punished there. So, just talking about the Spirits deck in general, I mean, going into Proto Dark Ascension, Wolf Run was huge. Uh, Delva was huge. And your deck... From on the face of it, looked like it had an amazing matchup against Delva, but Wolfram was always going to be a struggle. What made you settle on that particular deck? Uh, honestly, Wolfram wasn't one of the main decks we were focusing on for that tournament. Um, like it didn't. I think that like looking at the tournaments right beforehand and the new cards that had come out, um, there wasn't really a lot pointing to Wolfram being particularly well-positioned or one of the big decks in that tournament, as far as we could tell. Um, okay. We did, like, I mean, we were testing Wolfram. Um, Reed specifically was doing a lot of work on it. We were trying things like using Faithless Looting and Mulch in Wolfram, um, in addition to just, like, regular Wolfram. Um, and it was, like, fine, but nothing special. And basically, like, all of our testing was, okay, let's try all these different decks. Okay, there won't be Delver. Okay, let's try some other stuff. Okay, it doesn't beat Delver. Okay, nothing's beating Delver. We have to just play Delver. Um, and then I was just like, fine, we can play Delver, but I really don't like a lot of the stuff that's going on in Delver. Um, if I'm going to play with the card Delver of Secrets, I want the rest of the deck to be different. Um, and, like... We had seen in various matches that Phantasmal Image was just amazing because of yeah. uh, Geist, or because of um, Stranger Geist, largely. Um, like w- basically, the only deck we could find that was beating Delver was uh, like Daybreak Ranger Red Green Aggro, um, and uh, Phantasmal Image was amazing against them, um, and. So, like, one of the main things that I wanted to do was have a deck that could play Phantasmal Image, and, like, having uh, Drug Skull Captain over Geist of St. Traft is, like, well, now you have the best possible thing to Phantasmal Image instead of the worst possible thing to Phantasmal Image. Um, yeah. And so that means that you can just play a bunch of main deck Phantasmal Images. Um, and, like... For most of our testing, we were assuming that Sword of War and Peace was going to be, like, everywhere. Like, it was just the best card in the format, and it would be, like, defining all the matchups, and, like, you couldn't play any... Like, you couldn't play, like, black-white tokens or, like, uh, control or something, because you couldn't be a Sword of, Peace, or a Sword of War and Peace. Um, and so it seemed like well, people are probably going to figure this out, and everyone's just going to, like, blow up your sword of foreign pieces, and you'll, like, spend five mana, and they'll destroy your sword, and then you won't really be able to win that game. And so I would like to instead have everyone assume that we're playing swords, because everyone's playing sword, and not play any artifacts and beat them because they have dead cards instead of blows, um, which is also why I wanted to move away 
um, Porcelain Engineer, which was another card that was in a lot of our Delver lists and testing. Um, okay. And then it was also just, like, I wanted to have an edge in the mirror where I wanted to have, like, bigger creatures without relying on equipment, and um, I didn't want to lose to Lingering Souls. Um, that was a big deal. Like, before Orlando, I was playing uh, Champion of the Parish Delver, um, and most of my wins post-board were just, like, grinding people out with Doom Traveler, Mortar Pod, and uh, Midnight Haunting, but, like, you couldn't grind out uh, Lingering Souls that way because it just made way more creatures than you were ever making. And to me, that killed that deck because it killed, like, the way that I was actually playing it, even though it looks a little different, even though it's a little different than how it looks on paper. And so I needed to find something that was, like, competitive against uh, Red Green Aggro and Lingering Souls and uh, didn't rely on equipment and could play Phantasmal Image. So, listeners... This is what happens at the highest level when playtesting. I guess, like, with with the luminaries that you've been playtesting with recently, there must have been some off-the-wall ideas that came up that just made everybody shake their heads and go, not again. Not necessarily from you, but maybe maybe Chapin came up with something. But also from others. Um, (laughs) I mean, like, for a lot of our testing in Honolulu, I was working on a deck uh, that we were calling Young Wolf. Um, because that was its defining card. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's a story here that I think our listeners are dying to hear. <laughs> well, the deck was basically just Young Wolf and as many Young Wolves as I could play. <laughs> like, it's just like, all right, look through this spoiler uh, and standard to find every card that is functionally very similar to Young Wolf. Play them all. Um <laughs> what I mean by that is I was playing Young Wolf, Strangler Geist, um, Doom Traveler, and uh, Loyal Cathar, and then, like, Green Sun Zenith to find more Strangler Geists or Young Wolves. And basically, I just wanted to, like, flood the board in little creatures that I could count on to be in play, and then cast Overrun. And, like... The reason that I built that deck is because at the time we were, like, Chapin was working on a Chapin control deck, because that's what he does, until proven that he has to work on something else. Um, I'm guessing it was Grixis? <laughs> uh, I mean, it doesn't really matter what colors it is Chapin. Like, it moves around, but it's some kind of, like, multicolored, slow control deck with you know, a lot of um, And so, like, the early metagame in our testing that I was working with was, well, Chapin was playing that, and Andrew Cuneo was playing his updated version of his blue-white control deck that he succeeded with in Worlds, and like, you know, I was just looking at this completely unrealistic format, and I was like, well, what can I do about this? Well, what if all of my creatures don't care about Day of Judgment? <laughs> and okay. then, like, my plan for beating other creatures is to just cast Overrun. And, like, this deck isn't good, but, like, it was actually pretty good at attacking the very narrow metagame that I was looking at. Then at some point we got around to testing it against Delver, and I just got destroyed, and I was like, okay, fine, let me try some changes to make it better against Delver, let me try some more. Okay, never mind, this can't be Delver, I'll move on to something else. So that was, like, my insane pet project that people couldn't really take seriously, um, <laughs> which is not to say it was the only insane pet project that we had going on. Um, most of uh, John's testing efforts were on Havengol Lich Infinite Combo, 
the deck. Wow. Um, like Heartless Summoning, Heaven Golich, uh, Perilous Mirror, and um, Priest of Urbrask. Yeah. And then just like ways to set that up and stuff. Um, that was like the primary deck that John's innovative powers were going toward. TBS was working on that deck with him for a long time. Um, I love that deck. I, I tried to make that work as well, but yeah. obviously I know John Finkel. <laughs> well, he couldn't do it. So. <laughs> Take heart, Chris. <laughs> Good thing I gave up. <laughs> um, but, I mean, he was I, on that deck until, like, days before he beat And I, I presume it takes a lot to get Paul Rietzel off anything red and white that turns dude sideways? Yeah, he came pretty much committed to playing Tempered Steel. Um... But I guess I talked out of it. Okay. It's probably a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Until, well, of course, then he played red-white at uh, the block GP, and was that Anaheim? And sort of blew away everybody until well, the top eight? He played it at the PT. Um, like, he played that at the PT where the rest of us were playing uh, Guys of St. Traft and uh, Invisible Stalker. And sure. he did very well at that PT. Like, he was live really late in the tournament. Like, I think he almost top it. I think he probably, like, top 25 or top 16 or something. Like, he had some good finish in that tournament with Boris. Yeah, and, well, I mean, that's his deck. Yeah. So, it's, yeah, that's awesome. I recently, at FNM, played against a friend of mine who was playing your blue-black tap-out control list that yeah. you put up a, a week or so ago. Yeah. Um, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, uh, about why I built that deck, why it doesn't work, why it, like, what it's trying to do, what are we going for here? Well, I was playing, uh, I, I was, I had been talking to Brad Nelson, so I was playing, obviously, Trading Post. Okay. So, it's and loose? I lost <laughs> in one, in 48 minutes. Okay, that's right. Because <laughs> I couldn't figure out what he was doing, and very early on, I pillar of flamed his Archaeomancer. Okay. <laughs> so, that's bad for him. Yeah, so basically he was just beating me with Khan and Liliana, which I couldn't get rid of because I couldn't keep dudes on the board. And I'm just sitting there going, I can't concede because I don't know how to sideboard. <laughs> so you're so, like, let's keep playing this to see if I can figure out what his kill is? Yeah, and he wouldn't let on that I had basically exiled half his win condition. Right, yeah, that arcane answer was very important. <laughs> <laughs> So, I, if I remember correctly, that came about from a draft deck, right? Uh, well, not a single draft deck. It came about from, like, a strategy that I'd implemented in a number of draft decks, oddly enough. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, you do draft, like, 17 M13s a day or something. Yeah, so. I mean, I draft enough that I've multiple times been able to put together the common-uncommon-rare combo of Archaeomancer, Elixir of Immortality, and uh, Diabolic Revelation. <laughs> Only like times, but I mean, I'm going to put a link to that article in the show notes. But the deck basically wins by recurring Talran's invocation with Archaeomancer repeatedly. Incidentally, Talran's invocation is one of the things it can do. I would say the deck wins by casting any and all of its spells as many times as it wants to. Eventually, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is a sign of blood in there too, isn't there? Four. So you could actually win by sign of blooding your opponent out. You could do that. I wouldn't recommend it. I would rather just, like, deck them the hard way. <laughs> you just sign of blood them, and you just, like, elixir until they run out of cards. <laughs> <laughs> 
So what uh, what are the weaknesses to this deck? Because I, I, I'm on the verge of recommending it to people who want to troll an entire FNM. Um, I mean, if they're going to uh, play it to troll an entire FNM, um, the blue-black version is, like, my first effort with this deck. Um, the next week I put up a green-black version that's probably a little better. And this week I'm going to do some more uh, work with it. I'm thinking about red-black, but uh, I've been playing a four-color build um that I started working on yesterday. Um, but, yeah, I, I really like the Diabolic Revelation Elixir of Immortality endgame, and I'm just trying to figure out, like, what the best support for it is. I mean, the basic weakness is aggro decks. Like, you beat up anyone that, like, gives you time and is trying to win an endgame, because your endgame is just, like, definitively better than everyone else's by a lot. Um, like, if someone's trying to grind an advantage with Trading Post, and they're like yep, I'm going up, like, a t- card or two a turn on you, and you're like, okay, well, how about every turn I draw six cards and destroy all your permanents? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that like, seems fine. So it's good against, like, all the trading post decks, uh, most of the ramp decks, uh, most of the other, like, uh, Sun Titan control type decks. It's bad against Infect, Zombies, Delver, uh, that kind of deck. It's good against, like, the slightly more, like, you know, the green creature decks that lose to Day of Judgment effects, if they're just like, if you kill my creatures, I will lose, you're generally like, okay, I can kill your creatures. Yeah, a lot. um, If they're, like, putting you on a real clock and disrupting you and generating gradual card advantage, like, the Delver matchup's, like, very difficult and hard to solve. And then, like, Infect and Zombies are similarly difficult, slightly easier to solve if you're willing to commit to it. Um, like, you can play a bunch of, like, death verdicts and go for the throats and stuff, or, well, Doom Blades, if you're trying to beat, uh, Infect. And Zombies is really hard if you're blue-black, but if you're willing to move into other colors, like, you can just do the same thing as everyone else to beat Zombies and, like, play a bunch of Celestial Purges and Timely Reinforcements and Drag Tusks and stuff. I found that Blade Splicer beat Zombies fairly well. Yeah, Blade Splicer is my favorite main deck card against them by a lot, certainly. Travis, what's your favorite card against zombies, as if I didn't know? Faithbender! <laughs> we we actually brewed a couple of shows ago a green-white sort of aggro-y life gain deck. Uh, I beat zombies on 72 life at one point just by blinking Thrag Tusk with Restoration Angel with Faithmender in play. It rocks Faithmender, like the one five yeah. double. Okay. Because <laughs> it, it it blocks all of their creatures and only kills the one that you don't care about, Gravecrawler, and it so it doesn't trigger the Undying or the Blood Artist, and it just gains you back all the life you're losing anyway. Okay, that's uh, pretty. Cool. I, I still haven't lost the zombies with a thing. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, Whatever works, right? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean that makes sense. Yeah, that that blue black deck is sweet. Um, I mean. It, like, if you'll indulge me to talk about it a bit, I'd be happy to explain, like, how I came to that. Um, that was my next question. What what was the process in building that? Yeah, so, I mean, so basically it's a combination between, well, I have this endgame that I've done in Limited that seems like it would be sweet if I could do this in Constructed and have all the things that I want in my deck to, like, Revelation 4 to be able to, like, deal with everything and kill them the way that I want and stuff, um, rather than needing to, like, hope that I get a murderer and ideally get a mutilate and, like, all the other various pieces that you want, like, hope that I can draft one of each of them to just, like, know that I get all of them. 
So it seems like an act that would like to be played and constructed instead of limited, basically. Um, sure. And then, um, basically, like, control acts in general have been moving toward, uh, like, the sorcery speed, board control, tap out for a big threat style, moving away from counter spells because of Cavern of Souls. And so, like, all the, like, Esper, Solar Flare-type decks have been, like... A, they're usually, these days, like, on no counter spells. Like, they don't have any mana leaks or dissipates or anything. Whereas, like, months ago, you'd have, like, the blue-black all-instant speed deck that was, like, uh, Think Twice and Forbidden Alchemy and Doomblade and uh, mana leak and dissipate, and, like, you kill them with Drownyard because you never have to tap out to play it. Once you're committed to the idea okay, I can't play counterspells, I'm not going to play counterspells, I don't need to play counterspells, I'm just going to spend mana on my turn, there's no reason to play Think Twice and Forbidden Alchemy. Um, I mean, you could play Forbidden Alchemy because it fills your graveyard if that's what you're trying to do, but these are like, you're spending a ton of mana for the privilege of drawing cards at instant speed compared to the other card draw options that exist. Like, you're paying five mana to draw two cards with Think Twice when you could just pay, like, two or three mana to draw two cards with Simon Blood or Divination. Um, and if you don't need to rely on it for card selection or filling your graveyard, you're paying ten mana to draw two cards with Forbidden Alchemy. Um, so if you can just, like, replace all of those things that make you spend so much mana to get ahead just a tiny bit with cards that get you ahead just as much for, like, less than half of the mana, um you get just, like, a lot more velocity going through your deck. So when I can combine those with Augur, Folos, and Ponder, I can actually just, like, chain card draw spells and, like, tear through my deck to find, like, the one dialogue revelation for my endgame. And um, as people have learned from uh, Elixir of Immortality in, like, M10, or whatever the first time Elixir of Immortality was printed drafting... Uh, yeah. If you were into the like Doomblade, Sign and Blood, Divination, Elixir, uh, 4C deck or whatever, like there was an Elixir of Immortality control deck that just like plays a bunch of card draw and removal and then shuffles it all back in with Elixir. So the next time you're going through your deck, it's just like very dense with powerful spells. Um, I was basically just trying to do that and construct it, which is a similar end game to the end game that I was playing in Time Spiral Block constructed with Gaia's Blessings where you just, like, shuffle your uh, Careful Considerations back into your deck with Jay's Blessings, and you get to the point where you can just cast Careful Consideration every turn, because your one Careful Consideration draws you into another one, and then, like, you shuffle them all back and draw into them again. Um, and so I'm basically just trying to get to the point where I can always spend all of my mana drawing more cards, except for the, like, few mana that I need to spend dealing with whatever threat they play. Um, until I get to the point where I can just loop Diabolic Revelations instead of messing around with my card draw. And then I usually end up with, like, three divinations in my hand that I'm not doing anything with because it's more efficient to just cast my other spells. So, basically, it's just, like, realizing that moving away from instant speed to sorcery speed lets you spend less mana on divinations and deciding that Elixir of Immortality is an engine. Okay. <laughs> 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 so far above where any of us is thinking it's crazy. Uh, well, <laughs> hey, with the so, cards that have been spoiled so far, uh, Sam, do you think that it's moving towards a more tap-out control deck? For well, control? I mean, I would say that there are a number of uncounterable spells, and if you can't rely on your spells to resolve, 
counter spells are less good. We've already learned this with Cavern of Souls. I would say that the uncounterable red-black card, um, the Mimorosite, is yeah. certainly bad for a deck that's relying on one or two cards as its only win conditions, but most tap-out control decks aren't doing that. I would say that we're not moving toward... I'd say that assuming you're going to play a control deck, what we've seen so far pushes toward the tap-out style. I don't know that I would say that Return to Ravnica in general is pushing toward a control deck. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if... I mean, to me, a bunch of, like, mid-range uncounterables pushes toward Jund, which is a deck that came about in a format where all the mid-range cards were ba- were awesome and there were no counter spells. As it should um, be. <laughs> yeah, if you like that kind of thing. <laughs> I don't know. Cranial Extraction was probably my least favorite card back when it was legal. And just every time I saw it, I was just like, no, I hated it. And, uh, you know, now they've reprinted it a couple of different ways. And now that it's uncounterable, I don't know. <laughs> I'm kind of dreading that. Well, I mean, I mean it, you can just ignore it if you play, like, a creature deck. Like, yeah, you just have to not play combo. And I like playing combo decks, so, well, yeah. I mean, realistically, you haven't been able to, like, play a real combo deck in Standard for a very long time. Was it last year that they had a, the Splinter Twin deck in Standard? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's been since then. Oh, well. Sam, do, where do you pick up the inspiration for your decks? Do you uh, tend to look at the metagame and see how you can attack it and look for weaknesses, or do you just kind of build what you think will be successful based on the card pool? I know we've had uh, several pros on before who their advice was literally just play the best cards in the format and you'll win, but that seems like a very naive approach to something that can be a bit more nuanced, uh, considering you've just used mathematics is a perfect example of why to run sorcery speed cards. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, like, for me, honestly, there isn't, like, one way that all of my decks come about. Like, a lot of them are inspired from things that I do in Limited. Like, here's an interaction that I've played with that was sweet. I wonder if I can, like... I mean, you could say that the Invisible Stalker Geist of Traft deck is just, like, well, Invisible Stalker with uh, silver inlaid dagger was like unbeatable in draft. What if I just did that and constructed? Um, I mean, like, <laughs> you know, there are a lot of interactions where it's just like the sweetest thing that you can do in draft, if you get to build around it, gets enough sweeter and constructed that you can, like, play that as a deck. And so I, I really think that, like, not enough people consider, like, what they learn from Limited when it comes to, like, building constructed decks. So a lot of it is. Let me choose this sweet interaction that I've seen from Limited or read about or just, like, oh, look, these two cards look like they'd be sweet together. Like, Disciple of Polos and Thragtusk were just obviously meant to be played with each other. Well, how can I build a deck that actually supports playing with both of them? And, like, okay, what other cards will I want to sacrifice to my Disciple of Polos to get to build a shell around that? And sometimes you're like, okay, everyone's playing Delver. Like, actually, everyone's playing Delver. What are the cards in the format that are good against Delver? What are the strategies that are good against Delver? Like, how can I beat this deck and only this deck? Usually that line of thinking doesn't lead to, well, I should play exactly this. It leads to, well, here are a number of different strategies I can consider. And then you can, like, look at other factors to figure out which one of them you're interested in. But, I mean, basically just, like, different formats call for different things. And, like, different times in a format call for different things. Like, um, when you're first getting into a format with a new set, 
then it's going to be a lot more about like what are the weak cards, what are the like build rounds, what are the cards that support those, what kind of decks do they lead to, and then like as you get to a more established metagame, you get to well what beats those decks, and then as you get to an even more established metagame, you get to well how is the metagame shifting week to week uh, based on exactly what decks did well in this tournament, what decks do I expect to do well in the next tournament, what's going to shape up well against that metagame, so you kind of move from like really broad, innovative, like, what can I do with this card pool as a whole to specific, detailed tournament metagame analysis and, like, you know, a lot of the, like, SCG uh, open-level analysis is going to be, well, I don't really, like, I'm not going to put the time into building, like, a complete new deck from scratch in the one week that I have after seeing the results of the last tournament. I'm just going to think about, like, trends in the metagame and figure out which of the four standard decks that I know that I have access to or know how to play or think are good will be best against the way that I expect the field format to look next week. And, um, like, a lot of my articles early on when I was uh, playing, like, traveling all around the world playing in Grand Prix and different continents and stuff were, okay, here are the results of this week's Grand Prix, here's where I think that will make the format move, here's the deck I think you should play next week, or here are the tweaks that I think you should make to your deck for next week based on what just happened. Um, and so, like, there's certainly a lot of, like, metagame analysis that goes into building and choosing decks late in the season. But, like, most recently, my most famous successes, not surprisingly, have been on the PT, which is, like, by definition, the beginning of a season. Um... And so there you're not going very much on, well, how is this format evolving? And instead you're going on, well, how can I break this new world? See, the problem I had with going off what's good in draft is that feed the pack is just a really bad card. (laughs) Um, Is that the only (laughs) card you draft? (laughs) It was the only card I ever won with in that that format. That card was really good, especially if you got all the fortress crabs. Yeah, absolutely. Uh No, it wasn't. Um, so, as a deck builder, what do you what do you think is your biggest strength uh, when it comes to building decks and and sort of getting them into the into the stream? Uh, I guess like a willingness to not play the best cards. You know, there have been jokes that I just like take the best decks and then cut their best cards. Like I did. <laughs> I mean, like uh, the spirit deck was well. Let's take Delver and cut. Geist of St. Traft and uh, Sword of War and Peace, their best cards. And then, like, I built, like, the blue-white mid-range deck um, by saying, well, what if we cut Delver from Delver? <laughs> and uh, Sounds like exactly what I do when I'm building decks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just like... Yeah, but do you add unwinding clock? <laughs> <laughs> right, I mean, you have to have a reason for it. You have to know, like, what you're trying to accomplish with it and why you want to cut it. But, like... People build around beating the best cards. People do take their existence into account. And so if you understand, like, why you're cutting it and what you're replacing it with and stuff, like, it does help to, like, you know, not have sacred cows or whatever and, like, just keep an open mind about being able to change, like, being able to change whatever you want in a deck. But, I mean, I also don't like the sentence, change whatever you want in a deck, because it implies that a deck is this exact list of cards, and you can, like, modify it by a certain amount or whatever. Like, Mm -hmm. every now and then there will be a discussion about, like, 
hey, you could play, like, this in Jund or whatever, and someone's like, well, that's already in Jund. And I'm like, well, that's in a Jund list you've seen, I guess. But, like, <laughs> um, just the idea that cards are or are not in decks is, like, if you're talking about someone's specific deck, it makes sense. But, like, when you're building a deck, there are no cards that are already in it. <laughs> so true, so true. Like, when people say to me, why are you playing that? Like, I was trying out um, Terrarian in a modern eggs list, and right. people were saying, well, eggs doesn't run Terrarian. I'm like, well, <laughs> your eggs doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> as, it t- as it turns out, mine shouldn't either, but I had to try it. <laughs> yeah. If there's one common mistake that people make when, when building decks, aside from being attached to specific cards, would you say there's another one, like one big mistake that people make? Um, I mean, I don't think that people understand uh, non-four numbers of cards very well. Like, this is much less of a problem than it used to be. But, like, I used to play a lot of, like, ones and twos in my deck, and people would be like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, one of these is the best card, and you should just be playing four of it. Then there came to be, like, some weird, specific, conventional wisdom about, like, what it means when you see a three in a deck. This is a card that you want to draw exactly once per game, and what a two means. And it's like, well, this is a card that, you know, some description that has to fit to any time you have that number of a card in your deck. And, like, sometimes you just need exactly that many cards at that space in your curve. Or I think people don't properly value having multiple options in terms of what spell they cast once they hit a specific amount of mana. Like, I think that way too many people are on, I need to either play Geist of St. Traffer or Blade Splicer. Like, one of them is best card, and I need to play it. And never think about the, well, what if I play some of both of them, and then have both of them in my hand on turn three? And then, if I'm being attacked, I can play the Blade Splicer, and if I'm not, I can play the Geist of St. Traffer. Options are awesome, and if you have more copies of the same card, you'll have fewer options. Like, when you cast your Ponder, you won't be able to be like, I want to shuffle away this 3-drop because I'm hoping to cast the other 3-drop or whatever. And so I've built some successful decks that are just based on, well, I have all these cards that are roughly the same power level and have roughly analogous effects, but I don't know which one I'm going to want to cast once I get to this amount of mana, and so I'll just, like, play a bunch of them. And I can build my game toward whichever one I happen to draw, and then my opponent won't know what I'm doing as well, or I can play the one that's better when I have them both in my hand. That, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Plus, it can confuse your opponents. I mean, if it, the whole what you were saying about the Geist of St. Traft and um, the Blade Splicer, if I see a Blade Splicer, then I'm not going to be siding in the... Um, uh, sacrifice. Well, the, yeah, or, oh. or, or like sacrifice. If, if I'm in blue, Fantastical sure. Image, if I'm in black, um, Gets Verdict... Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, whatever it is that's going to deal with Geist of St. Trap. So then if you happen to have Geist of St. Trap next game, I don't have anything to deal with it. I'm I'm expecting a Blaze Splicer, and I have the removal, and I don't have the right removal. Right. And like you makes a lot of up sense. a storm. <laughs> sure. I mean, it makes a lot of sense if you're building your deck heavily around either one of those cards, which you can do. Like, if you're playing Blaze Splicer, you can, you know, play a bunch of Restoration Angels and stuff. But, like, Restoration Angel isn't bad with Geist of St. Traft. And if you're playing Geist of St. Traft, you can play a bunch of equipment to put on your Hexproof guy. But, like, I see a lot of decks where, 
literally the only difference between decklist A and decklist B is the decklist A has Blaze Blazer and decklist B has Guy Saint Draft, and those are the spots where it doesn't make sense to me to not mix them up. I think the whole tweaking of Core Blade situation led to a situation where one person identified what they thought was the best deck, and then people just tweaked it endlessly to deal with the latest innovations to beat it. Sure. And I think that's what's happening now with Delver. Like, oh, is it Hero of Blade Hold? Is it Geist? Is it Blade Splicer? Is it, is it even Delverless? It's interesting to see how this sort of thing develops. I think that's where brewers have the most success, is when everybody's trying to metagame against each other, and then a deck comes up the middle and beats everybody. Yeah, I think people probably also... Like, I think when people try to tweak decks, they probably don't fully appreciate how cards interact with each other. They'll just say, well, here's this Delver list. It's playing a bunch of pikes. I think Pike is going to be worse in my metagame than Sword of Peace, or Sword of War and Peace because I expect a lot of Lingering Souls. So I'll just cut Pikes for Swords, and then I'll play this deck. And it's like, okay, well, did you make sure that you still want to be playing these Thoughts thought Scourers now that you're not playing Pikes? And is Invisible Stalker, like, right for your deck now that you have Swords that make your guys unblockable instead? And there are a lot of, like complex interactions in Delver and like cards that like to work with specific other cards and a lot of these synergies are really built from the ground up and like changing one piece has a pretty relevant impact on the other pieces and I'm not sure that people like properly understand like what the person who put the deck together originally was thinking and like why the cards are what they are and so in tweaking it they'll probably end up with like a suboptimal choice somewhere else where they didn't like readjust based on that change. Sam, are there any deck builders that you trust, uh, the articles that you read weekly and just find yourself nodding along and agreeing with them? That's a pretty good question. Um, I should maybe try to do that. <laughs> uh, I mean, like, I read a lot of uh, Patrick Chapin's articles and I agree with a lot of what he says. A lot of where I think he excels is in card evaluation rather than deck building, which is not to say that I think he's a bad deck builder, but rather that I think his like early card evaluation skills are very remarkable. And so like I definitely pay attention to what he has to say about new cards and new interactions and stuff. So I'm much more likely to like read his articles for points where he says, hey, try this card with this card, rather than like here's an exact list that's based around these cards. And I think that certainly early in a season, everyone who writes deck lists is writing, here's an idea, and they don't intend for you to just, like, copy it. It's not well-tuned or tested. It's, I want to show off this interaction, and I need to put a whole deck list here, because that's what people want to see. Other, So, I mean, like, I guess I think that most new deck lists that people put in articles, I mean, I know from writing articles that when you put a new deck list in an article, it's a new deck list. Like, you write about it because you're excited about it, and you just built it, and that means it's not finely tuned and tested. So I'm not going to just, like, every time I see a new list by anyone, be like, oh, this is the way to build this deck. I'm going to say, oh, that's a cool idea. What can I do with this? But mm. if it's not a deck that's already had tournament success, I don't assume that they've worked on it a lot. If someone's doing, like, you know, a PTQ, like, a report about the deck they want a PTQ with, then I know that it's a deck they've tested a lot, and, like, it's fine-tuned, and they really are saying, these are the card choices I think you should be making. But I think that, like, a lot of the 
basically, I think that you're going to find more articles like that, basically from people you haven't heard of as much. Whereas, like, a lot of the big-name writers aren't playing in PTQs every week, and if they're, like, fine-tuning a deck, it's for a tournament that they can't talk about. <laughs> and so, like, a lot of the big names are going to be giving you, like, new, sweet ideas rather than finely crafted lists. And then, like, the up-and-comers uh, are going to be giving you, like, finely crafted lists they've won with, and that's why they're writing the article. So there are not any, like, big names where I'm going to read and just, like, be like, oh, I should just, like, copy that list and play it in some two-mans or whatever. Um, just because that's not really where they're coming from in writing the articles. Like, that's not what they're trying to do most of the time. I think that's why I've started watching the playtesting videos a lot more than reading decklist articles. Yeah. Because then not only do you get the list, but you see what is working and what isn't working for yourself, and you can make decisions based on what you expect in your meta. Uh, but one thing I've always enjoyed about reading Chapin is that Unlike a lot of the high-level players, he doesn't just dismiss cards outright because he doesn't think they're good enough. Yeah. He'll always try and find a way that something could be good. Now, unfortunately for people like me, I tend to clamp on to things that are probably terrible just because Chapin said they're good, and I thought <laughs> so too. Um, sure. But at least it gives you that other angle, you know? Yeah, I mean, he was talking about, like, when he and Zv did, like, competing stat reviews, how, like, he just said all the cards were bad, and he was just, like, talking about, you know, where they could be, like, how they might be able to be used someday or something. Um, Zvi is a person whose deck-building brain I have always wanted to pick. <laughs> yeah, Zvi is amazing. Uh, he's probably, like, he's almost certainly a better deck-builder than I am when he's actually playing, but that's not very often these days. Shame. Yeah. Um, I mean, his ability to just look at a format and break it on the first step is amazing. Like, I have to play a lot of games and try random ideas and see what works and what doesn't and just put hours in, whereas V is just like, this is what the format's about, this is the best thing you can do. You know, when I've worked with him on PTs, like, he'll send out, like, here are my first three ideas, and, like, one of them is going to be the deck we're playing. <laughs> that good. Yeah. I feel like he, and, uh, he did a set review on Twitter where he, like, tweeted every single card and just, you know, like, 20 years, so, you know, like, a little sentence about each one. Might have even been rhyming. I don't know. It was just this crazy... I, I, it might have been Zendikar. It was a while ago. Um, and I just... Yeah. His brain is just amazing. Yeah, he's a really smart guy. So, I... Don't want to wear you out, Sam. You've been uh, talking for most of the show, so uh, I'm going to ask a couple of the others if they have anything they wanted to uh, to bring up here. Uh, anybody got anything they wanted to talk about, guys, before we uh, go back to asking Sam about draft? I, I do have one question, and I've always, I, and ironically, I've never asked any pro I've interviewed this. What motivates you to be a professional Magic player? What maintains your motivation for doing that? So, unlike most people... I'm, or most, like, competitive high-level tournament players. I'm not a very competitive person. Um, right. Like, for most people, or a lot of pros, it's, well, I have this drive to compete. I want to, like, beat other people or be the best at something. Um, I just like games. 
I play games. Like, that's what I do. Like, I'm not really all that into anything else. I never have been. I've always been into, like, all kinds of gaming. Magic is the best game, and competing lets me see if I'm figuring it out properly. And basically, like, I like trying to understand and figure out games, and magic changes, and I have to keep re- Figuring it, figuring it out, and re-understanding everything, and um, just like figuring out how to evolve with it, and it always has new lessons to teach me and stuff. And like how I think about most things is like through things I've learned from magic. I honestly believe that magic is probably just like the best teacher I've ever had for any and everything. I play magic as like the way that I understand the world almost. Um, <laughs> And, no, I, I uh, completely understand what you're saying. That yeah, that's actually a very good point. Like, I just do it enough and like care about it enough and do it well enough that I happen to like be able to do well in competitions, and it's fun to do so. I don't care very much if I do well at any particular tournament, um, and it certainly like doesn't impact my mood very much or anything. Like you know, I was very jovial in Rome after I started 06 and Standard. Like, I was, you know, walking around and laughing about how much I was getting destroyed. Um, like, I'm a very good loser. It just, like, doesn't upset me very much. I've played enough, but, like, you know, it's one game, or one day, or whatever, it happens. It doesn't really, like, mean anything about me or whatever. I, I just don't take it too hard. I'm a much worse winner, which is kind of a problem with, like, board gaming and stuff, because, like, they're... Like, with board gaming, I can't routinely play against the best players in the world because there aren't tournaments like there are with Magic to find them. So I have to just play against whoever my friends happen to be or whatever. And so I win a vast majority of the times that I play board games. So it's, like, weird to be in a spot where I'm a, I know that I'm a much better, like, more graceful loser than winner, but I always, like, win games when I play them. Um, but basically I just like get to, as far as what I mean when I say that I'm not a good winner, um, I just like get too excited about it and I'm like, oh yeah, I did something right. That's fun. And I don't think enough about the fact that, you know, whoever I'm talking to didn't just do that and they don't really want to hear it. Um, Man, did you see that 24 fireball blasted you in the face with? It was awesome. (laughs) Yeah, like... (laughs) How fun was that? I just got to draw, like, seven cards that I wanted every turn for, like, four turns. And I don't really know why you were still playing, because, like, like, you had obviously lost seven turns earlier, but it was pretty awesome. (laughs) That's not the conversation they want to be having. (laughs) So it's it's almost like it's become a sort of achievement unlocked thing at that point, right? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, honestly, I just, like, I like figuring magic out and... It's hardest to do that at the competitive at the like competitive level, and therefore it's most fun and rewarding. Um, I also like tournament success because it helps like legitimize my time, um, and like it's very nice to be able to say like, you know, look, I'm actually like good at doing this. I'm enough people care about what I have to say that I'm like actually relevantly contributing to something like a discussion people are having or whatever. Like, I'm doing work that people value. I know that people value my work because they're willing to pay for it. So it doesn't feel like I'm just doing nothing. 
I mean, basically, the only reason that I care about how well I do is how it, like, legitimizes my behavior overall and just, like, lets me feel good about what I'm doing. Um, outside of that, it wouldn't really matter to me. Winning or losing any particular game really only matters in a, like, historic context and stuff. So, interesting question, then. This is something that just came to me. Would you rather win a GP or have someone win a Pro Tour with your deck? Um, probably win a GP because I've come close enough to doing the other one already. Yeah, basically, it would be the bigger personal achievement at this point. Like, it's certainly not about the money or anything, but I just think that, like, in terms of, you know what would, like, look best for me or whatever at this point right now, I think, winning a GP. Well, uh, hopefully that will be GP Toronto in December so that you can come up to that. <laughs> I mean, I'll be going to that one whether I'm winning it or not. Uh, I hope <laughs> Excellent. it's Grand Prix Costa because that one's sooner. <laughs> well, yeah, but I won't be there for that one, so... <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's uh, interesting because most deck builders want their decks to do well, but obviously personal success comes first in a lot of cases. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's like, totally understandable. Certainly, you know, if I hadn't already, you know, I've put, like, at least four people in the top eights of PTs in the last two PTs or whatever, like, yeah, I don't... I, I, actually, four is a really conservative count. We'll go more than that. Um, <laughs> I don't... Well, there were three in Barcelona, wasn't there? There was so. three playing... So, wait, so it was... Pinkle and Yelger. Did someone else have it with my deck? Well, go down and <laughs> No, no, no. Sorry, it was Finkel and... Oh, it was Finkel and Yelger in Honolulu. Um, yeah. Go and Finkel in Barcelona. I think those were the only two that were actually playing the deck that I built for those tournaments. But, like, this Swedish guy who top-aided Honolulu was an update of my Champion Delver deck from the GP that, like, the Swedes directly, like, credited to me and talked to me about and said they took from me. So, like, that's close to being another one. And oh, yeah. Will, Will and I will not uh, brag about the fact that Alex Hain is a friend of ours. <laughs> 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 yeah, and I mean, like, as far as I'm go lost to Alex because he returned, or because he cast Arbor Elf rather than Abundant Growth after a Devastation Tide in one of their games. Um, so, like, I have already built a deck that was good enough to, like, win the PT there. And, yeah. like, Finkel should have made the finals if he blocked the Wolf and might have won the PT there. Like, it's just not that different of an achievement to have someone actually win a PT with the deck I built at this point. Where, sure. like, I've never even been in the finals with the GP, and, like, I've played a lot of them. That's, like, kind of disappointing at this point, especially since, you know, I'm playing with Go all the time, and he's won three of them or something. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. That matchup with uh, with Go was so stressful for everybody watching it. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was game four or whatever, where Go, like, missed an onboard kill and then, like, made several other mistakes. It was... Very stressful for some of us watching. <laughs> <laughs> well, game game five when he uh, when Alex hit the entreat for five, and I, I almost came out of my seat at that point. <laughs> I mean, I was just sitting watching at home. But yeah, that was uh, that was something. Did you even was that even in your testing gauntlet? Did you even consider a miracles deck? No, we did wow. not have it. Not many did apparently. Yeah. Um, 
But then again, not many people had Geist Descent Trapped and Welfare Silverheart either, so... Right. Yeah. I mean, I, that one, more people than I thought were working on something like it. Um, most of them didn't have Abundant Growth. That seemed to be, like, the biggest missing, missing link. Um, yeah. But there were various pieces that various groups, like, had and didn't have of it. It's a shame that the, that block format degenerated into Jund, Jund, and Jund, <laughs> because... The Protoss just had so many viable decks that all looked good. I mean, the Japanese reanimator list was insane. Yeah. In fairness, the block championship at Gen Con, which was recent and after it devolved into Jund, Jund, and Jund, was won by a friend of mine playing the update that I gave him of the Geist St. Trap deck. Awesome. I don't know what Return to Ravnica block is going to look like, but I have a feeling there will be multiple colors involved. Yes, I, I doubt a monocolor deck will win that BT. <laughs> uh, one thing we wanted to, uh, I wanted to ask for sure, what cards do you think, uh, from M13 particularly, aren't seeing enough play right now, either in Constructed or in Draft? Uh, aren't seeing enough play in Draft is a hard question. I guess Jam Datum and in Constructed... Uh, I mean, right now I'm staring at a Disciple of Bolas on my screen. That's exactly <laughs> the card I was thinking of. The thing, it just seems so good, but I can't, apart from doing it to Thrag Tusk, which just is, is insane value, I can't really get my head around a situation where it's awesome all the time. Right. I mean, it's really good with Worm Coil Engine. Ooh. It's also, like, insane with uh, Batter Skull, particularly after you equip Batter Skull to something else. It's probably really good with Runechanter's Pike, but I haven't tried that or seen anyone try it. It's also very good with Liliana, in that you can use her plus X ability. Of the Dark Realms? Yeah. Yikes. Yeah, I've drawn like 15 off him. Okay, so we have just given all of our listeners about six different ways to build a Disciple of Bolas deck. So what I'm going to do, listeners, send us an email... uh, Sam's just given you several amazing ideas that never even came close to my head uh, with Disciple of Bolas. Send us a deck list. What do you think you can do with Disciple of Bolas? Send us an email. We'll read the best ones on episode 51 next week. Wow, I, I'm just trying to think, get my head around you know, Battle Skull and then sacrifice the token to Disciple, draw four cards, gain four life, and then next turn equip it. Oh my lord. Yeah, you can equip the Battle Skull and then you can like metamorph the Disciple and sack the Disciple with the Batter Skull for six more cards if, you know, the first four don't get it done or whatever. Um, I don't know how much more you need to win, but sometimes <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> then you just Restoration Angel, the Metamorph, and yeah. Yeah, sure. I think you just gave Chris his next Friday Night Magic deck. <laughs> well, hey, so. listen. That'd be fun. I, I played a, a Pure Steel Paladin deck on Brad's stream the other night. Um, where I drew 27 cards in one turn with with uh, Lab Maniac and play to win the game. Sounds <laughs> sweet. Well, Piston Sledge to sacrifice all the equipment, then you face reward them all back. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, it lived up to the name. Yeah. Trainwreck Tuesday. Have there been any cards that you've seen, um, either when they were spoiled or after you'd played with them for a while, that you that just made you think, what was Wizards thinking when they printed this card? Either, like, why would I play it, or, you know, it's too powerful, or it's just terrible. Were there, were there any cards that you just kind of thought were just crazy? Uh, Tibbles? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's getting his own dual deck. Yeah. 
I, I'm actually... Go ahead. Well, I told my girlfriend that they were making a Tybalt versus Soren dual decks, and she was like, I don't understand. Isn't Soren, like, really powerful and Tybalt, like, kind of pathetic? And I was like, uh, I don't know, let's, like, read the blurb. And so I, like, showed her the blurb on Wizards' website, and she was like, wait, Soren created Avacyn. So he's, like, God in Innistrad, because Avacyn is, like, the most powerful thing. And Tybalt, let's see, he likes to hurt people and just became a planeswalker. Yeah, that doesn't make it seem closer. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> See, the thing all of you are missing is what the dual deck is actually going to be the is the dual deck of worst fashion choices. <laughs> well, in that case, Avison's got to be in it because if she hasn't got a loyalty card at Hot Topic, I don't know who does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was the thing that my girlfriend said after reading that was, well, now I understand where Avison's fashion sense came from. <laughs> <laughs> she was created by a vampire. I don't know uh, how many of you guys know who Taylor Momsen is, but I'm pretty sure she modeled for the Avacyn photo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I watch Gossip Girl. I admit it. I I don't at all. Never have. No. Um, I'm I'm just wondering when they're going to stop making mono-red dual decks, actually. But I think we mentioned that at some point. Like The last three, we had Koth was mono-red. We had... Dragons, Knights versus Dragons, that was mono red. Huh, that occurred to me. Because yeah. people like fire. Fire do is we, cool. Do we know that Tybalt is mono red? No, but considering his casting cost, I can't see them putting too many thing, other things in there. Yeah, but, I mean, he plays well with stuff that likes the graveyard. I could easily see him being red black. Maybe it's an awesome green white deck and Tybalt is just in the sideboard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could have four birds of paradise. <laughs> Best to all deck nice shiny ever. card. Don't put it in the deck. <laughs> well, that was what we did when we reviewed the event deck for M13, the Burning Vengeance one. We said the best way to make this deck good was to not play it, because <laughs> that thing was terrible. Yeah, I think M13 draft, Sam, you've been really vocal about how good that format is, yeah. uh, and I, I know you've played a lot of it. What makes a draft format good in your mind? Uh, I like it to have a lot of options um, and to not feel like it gets solved where you're just like, oh, this is the best deck, I should probably draft it all the time. In triple Lorwyn, I would just like draft fairies all the time if it was remotely open. And in Shadowmoor Eventide, like, Mono Red Aggro is the best deck by a lot and, like, there's just a lot of formats where you can look back and be like, yeah, in Onslaught, like, triple Onslaught, like, the best deck was, like, the blue-red Sparksmith Lavamancer skill deck by a lot. Um, and sometimes, like, you know, when you're the first person to figure that out or whatever, or if the best deck is a deck you really like to draft, like, sometimes those formats can be fun for a while, but they're never, like, great formats. And so I think the best formats are the ones that are, like, deepest and the ones where, like, when you look back on it, you're not like, oh, the that deck format. Yeah, Avacyn, Avacyn Restored was the blue-green deck, right? Or... Uh, I don't know about Avacyn Restored. Oh, Avacyn Restored was the blue-green deck. Yes, that's accurate. Um, sorry, yes, I agree with that. And I mean, it's okay if you're like, oh, Innistrad, like, the spider-spawning format. And, like, that might have been the best deck, but it also might not have been. And there it's just, like, the most iconic deck rather than, like, the only deck you can draft in the format. Yeah. Um... 
And like I, the green-white deck could get the jump on Spider Spawning and beat it before North of the Bone did enough, for example. Exactly. And I mean, like, that format was slightly too solved, in that, like, the green-white deck and the Spider Spawning deck were probably the best two decks, and it wasn't all that close. Um, but I mean, like, there were certainly other playable decks, like, a bunch of them. That That is a great format. Like, I, I think Innistrad was awesome. I think that it's very hard to have a format where there aren't one or two decks that really stand out when they come together. Um, mm-hmm. But I like it when there are a lot of different sweet decks that you can, you know, remember and talk about later. Like in Innistrad, there's like the Black White Dead Humans deck, Red or Red Black Aggro Vampire deck, the Green uh, White Beats deck, the like Spider Spawning deck, the like, you know, Zombie Control Blueback decks. Um, like there are a bunch of different things going on. Rise of the Eldrazi, like, the best deck was probably, like, the green XXX control deck, where you just play all the removal spells, ramp, and kill people with a little Mox Crusher. Um, <laughs> but the, like, I mean, I 6 0 that PT and the two decks I drafted were uh, blue-green leveler, or, I mean, sorry, green-white, no, not green, blue-white levelers, the colors that actually supported the leveler deck, blue-white levelers, and Red, black, bloodthrown vampire, Eldrazi tokens, aggro. Um, <laughs> and there were just like a bunch of different things going on in that format, um, and like a lot of sweet decks you could build. So basically, just like I like it when there are awesome build rounds. Um, I like it when uh, card evaluation changes a lot depending on what kind of deck you're playing. Like. If I'm in blue, I don't want to just go, like, I always take this blue card over this blue card over this blue card. I want it to be like, oh, this is the good one for exactly what my deck is doing. I want to have as many, like, close, difficult picks as possible. Like, in M13, like, Even Squire versus Attended Knight versus Griffin Protector versus Healer of the Pride at Uncommon. Like, it's not easy to say, like, to rank those cards. Like, say this one's better than this one is better than this one. Like, Even Squire is usually the best, but, like, I don't. I doubt there's a consensus about like whether uh, attended knight or griffin protector is a better card. No, and I, again, yeah, and I found that M13 has so many different ways you can build your decks. I mean, sometimes roaring primadox is awesome. Sometimes you pick it first because you think you're going to get the pieces, and then you never play it. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, there are just a ton of cards that like are good, but not amazing. Like, I mean, every blue card. Rank them. Good luck. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> um, like, Woken Turn versus Windrake versus Scroll Thief versus Watercourser versus Divination versus Unsummon versus Essence Scatter versus... Uh, every single playable blue common, like, yeah. varies wildly depending on what your deck is, and like, there is not a consistent pick order, arcane answer. Like, it just depends on what you have and what you're trying to do. And, I mean, that's true for a lot of colors. Like, which red commons is Roman and Goblin better or worse than? I don't know. All of them? None of them? Somewhere in there. <laughs> Searing Spear? Or... I mean, Searing Spear yeah. is the best one. But, like, after that, you're like, okay, is the boar better than X? And, like, it just depends on your curve and what your deck's trying to do and stuff. Like, Blade Test Boar is probably better than a lot of them if you're red-white exalted. Like, Especially if you can cut red effectively. Yeah. I mean, if I'm mono-red, I'd rather have a Goblin Jester, which, or Battle Jester, which I wouldn't rather have if I'm not mono-red. Sure. And, like, you know, Flunkies are better than everything else most of the time, but there are certainly decks where, like, 
you know, I'd rather have a turn slide than a flunkies because I'm a control deck or something, which, I mean, the default is certainly that I'd rather have flunkies. But, um, it, I mean, it all changes, and, like, that's why it's awesome. What uh, what would you pass a chronomaton for? Because y- y- your love of chronomaton is well known. Yeah, at Uncommon, I take uh, Oblivion... No, not Oblivion. I don't take Oblivion. I take... Wow. Um, Rancor, Armstealer... Chandra's, or, I mean, not Chandra's, uh, Flames of the Firebrand, Nighthawk, Tolerance Invocation. I think those are the only cards that I first pick over it uh, that aren't rare, if we're talking, like, pack one, pick one. Yeah. Um, I okay. Take it, so I, I, like, I take it over premium removal, pack one, pick one. If it's, like, if I already have a color, so if it's, like, pack one, pick two, that can change a lot. Like, if I first picked a Nighthawk, I'll take a Murder over a Chronomaton. Because yeah. I already want to be black, and I don't want to pass the murder, and like murder is probably a more powerful card. But I value like having the colorless first pick enough that I'm willing to like take a chronomaton over murder. So like a lot of that is just like chronomaton is a particularly good first pick specifically. Once you're actually in a color, it gets harder in terms of like do you want it over the best commons in that color? But um, pack one, pick one. I take it over every common and almost every almost every uncommon. Yeah, the more I play with it, the more I find I'm loving it. Uh, I'm, I'm even trying to figure out if it's playable and constructed. It's yeah, not. It <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I thought that everyone had come around on it, like, before the M13 GP, like, I asked Paulo, like, how much he liked it, and his answer was like, basically one level less than I like it. Like, he likes premium removal over it, but agrees that you take it over, like, everything else. And yeah. so I thought that Paul was saying that meant everyone was on board, um, because, like, I keep hearing that, like, on every video on Channel Fireball, they consistently underrate it and, like, take anything over it. And then, like, AJ commented on Luis's wall about, like, some chronomaton pick, and I was like, what's he talking about? And, like, went and watched Luis's most recent, like, M13 draft video. And he took Reckless Brute over chronomaton? Wow. Which is, like, insane to me. Like, Reckless Brute is borderline playable in the exact perfect deck for it, whereas Chronomaton is, like, one of the best decks, best cards is in in every deck, no matter what you're doing. Like, there's no combination of cards where that pick is remotely conceivable to me. And so, like, I commented on his Facebook, and I was like, this is the worst pick I've ever seen you make by a lot. And, like some of the other comments on that thread were, like, Chronomaton's overrated. I think it's still underrated. I think that, like, I personally have moved it up a lot in, like, the collective mind, but I still don't think people like it enough. Where And apparently, like, other people on channel are still saying, no, it, it, it should be lower than it is. And it makes no sense to me. I mean, it's like, it curves out blocking all of their guys by itself. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's turn three. You played a bigger guy. All right. You can't stack into my guy because it's bigger two now. Like, oh, you played another bigger guy. All right. Well, I'm still bigger than you. Like, now you have like three or four guys in play that can't stack because I have this one drop. (laughs) Like, the problem with five fives is that you can't be sure that you're going to get to cast them every game. You can always cast (laughs) Phenomenon. Yep. You're sad every time they, like, 
use a first pick removal spell on it because it didn't win you the game by itself like you thought it would. Like, <laughs> it's not like you invested anything, but, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't get how it is a question about that card being insane. Yeah. I, I, I've seen it do some strange, some scary things, and it very often just reads one colorless target player discards a removal spell. Yeah, when you're unlucky. Like, if they're lucky enough to have removal spell to discard, then that's what it does, except they have to spend, like, a real turn casting it, whereas, like, you probably didn't have another one drop. Now, in fairness, you might be putting yourself behind a turn because you might be, like, leveling it up instead of casting a guy, but you can decide when you can afford to do that, and, like, they're still usually going to have to use more mana than you did getting rid of it, and, like, it doesn't really matter that much when it does it. And... Um, yeah, I don't know. That card's so good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've done so many crazy things in M13. I mean, I, I assembled Roaring Primadox and Captain of the Watch last time I drafted, <laughs> which it, that was horrible, but unfortunately there was a Zathrid Gorgon on the other side of the board. Um, so you won? I did win, yeah. but it took a while. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, sounds like you were in that game. <laughs> and then I managed to put together... Um, Mark of the Vampire with Primal Hunt Beast. As a side and note, I don't believe you, but you're, okay. that was actually unfortunate. I think you're glad that he had the Gorgon because it meant that you got to beat a powerful card and you got to keep doing your thing longer, whereas usually you'd do that like twice and the game would end. This let you actually have fun with your Primadox and Captain of the Watch. Like, I don't think there's any way you're sad that your opponent had that card. I have been found out. <laughs> Especially since it let me draw my second Primadoc. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing missing from that deck, that deck was stupid. The only thing missing was a, a Thrag Task. I had Slime, Visionary, and Bloodhunter Bat in there, so um, it was pretty ridiculous. Yeah, the other thing, like, people complain about Chronomaton when they like draw it on turn 5 or whatever, but I've found that I'm almost always happy to draw it late, because like, you know, it still only takes, like, two turns or whatever, and it's a 3-3, and, like, that's good. Especially if you compare it to, like, what if you drew your any other one-drop ever on turn five? <laughs> Goblin arsonist, get there. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we've uh, we've racked your brains and, and uh, taken up a lot of your time here, Sam. So we, we've got a couple of things we normally do to end the show, uh, the first of which is something we like to call the random moment of geekery. Uh, regular listeners will know this is the segment where we each pick out something we've done this week that's not magic-related, but is still very, I guess, what some people would call geeky. And it sort of gives uh, gives a break to all the magic talk. Uh, let's start with Travis. Have you got a random moment of geekery, sir? Uh, yes, I do. It's something I tweeted them, or tweeted, I put it on my Facebook this week. It's uh, the Hemanity. It's a cross between Pawn Stars and He-Man, where a Skeletor <laughs> is trying to sell to Rick. What? <laughs> and That's awesome. You need to look it up. It's uh, Skeletor trying to sell the priceless diamond of disappearance to Rick from Pawn Stars. And, of course, he will only offer him, like, five bucks for it. <laughs> Was it Pawn Stars or Storage Wars that they found uh, a, a Lotus and a couple of other magic cards on? Storage Wars. Okay. 
Uh, Adina, you got one? Yeah. So after I bought that Rift Apparel shirt, I have been checking Rift Apparel and also T-Fury every single day because yeah. I'm afraid I'm going to miss a T-shirt that's, that's really good. And, you know, it, that just happens. Uh, but uh, one of the artists, there was a link, you know, on the side. They always have links to other things. And so I found this site, um, redbubble.com, and I've got a link in the show notes for you guys. Uh, that uh, has all sorts of different collections, TV shows, movies, video games, miscellaneous, you know, pixel uh, stuff. And there's just a, a lot of funny designs on there that have to do with Breaking Bad or um, Game of Thrones or Donkey Kong or various, you know, things like that. Uh, oh, my goodness. The second T-shirt here has got Team Marshall on it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Yeah. So so anyway, yeah. I just that that had a, a bunch of stuff. And other than that, I mean, really, I've I'm still making my way through the Mistborn trilogy. So pretty much all of my spare time, that's what I'm doing. And I'm into the third book now because I know you didn't want to say anything about it because I hadn't read it yet. But that's how far I've gotten so far. Have you read that, Sam? The Mistborn trilogy? No. Oh, really good. Really, really good. Fantastic. And the author is a big Magic fan. That's Brandon Sanderson. Uh, Will, remember to get Grisa. Yes, for no apparent reason, I guess because I had too much money on my hands, uh, I decided to go and see what this whole Kickstarter thing was about. And naturally, the first item that I went to go and see was uh, for Soulforge. And I'd heard uh, Brian Kibler talking about it. And obviously, you know, it's your own product, so you're going to, you know, uh, promote it as much as possible. Then I saw the video, and then I saw read the entire text, and I was like, uh, okay, even though there's no peer pressure, I was like, I guess I have to give money to this, to, you know, <laughs> be in on the Save the Ground floor, quote-unquote. So, uh, sure enough, I, uh, I, I feel my money was well invested by uh, sending uh, Brian Kipler and Gary Games uh, a pledge uh, for, for Soulforge. Yeah, definitely. I joined you in that club. As, well, the like the other thing was I was like, do I really want to be giving money in this? And then I was just like, going through my iPhone and I'm like, yeah, I play Ascension way too much. I need a, <laughs> I, need, I need another game to like, spell it time between. So sure enough, I was like, I know I'm gonna buy this and I know I'm gonna pay money for this. Why why not just get it out of the way quickly? How uh, how long did it take you before you went infinite the first time? Uh, on Ascension. Yeah, uh, four tur- uh, the fourth time I think. I I like I I didn't even realize you could go infinite until like the third time. I uh, I was like just reading the cards and I'm like, wait a second, if you have this, then that makes the mechana, and then you can get back the unlimited. Oh, yeah. wow, yeah. That, that works out quite nicely. So I mean, Sam, that's the kind of thing that you love, right? Like f- figuring out interactions like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I know you've played a lot of Ascension, too. I've played a little Ascension. Um, I haven't actually... I've barely played past the first set. It's a lot harder to go infinite than just the first set. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. But have, it, I, I can't help but think there's a second way to go infinite. I have never been able to find it. Something to do with life-bound, like, uh, with lifebound creatures and drawing all those cards, there has to be a way in there somewhere. I just haven't figured it out. Well, I or, assume you can always brute force it the same way you do it in the first set. Yeah, yeah, that's possible, I guess. But, I mean, 
something not involving Mechana because mm-hmm. when you're playing the AI, they grab the Reclamax immediately. But uh, that's going off on a whole other tangent. Yeah, we can have Ryan Kilmore on sometime and you can ask him. <laughs> <laughs> Jack, moment of geekery, sir. All right, so I have to ha- ask for an exception to be made in my case because mine is magic related, but I promise it's funny. That would be a first, but go okay. for it. All right, so. Uh, Due to my absence and uh, real life taking over, it's not really often I get to play Commander anymore. But when I do, the boys typically come over for a couple of hours and we enjoy ourselves. Now, magic has always been one of those things that my significant other, you know, she acknowledged that it was one of my hobbies and one of those deals, but never really, like, took the time to want to learn about it. And I never forced it on her because, you know, why make her want to learn nerdy stuff just to get to know me better? Whatever. So we were all sitting there playing Commander, and we just got done with a really long game. And Tiff walks up, and she's like, hey, can I play with you guys? And I look at her, and I'm like, uh, yeah, sure, babe. Do you uh, do you need me to help you, uh, you know, learn how to play and build your deck and everything? Because I was trying to be the good boyfriend. She's like, nope, I already know. And she, like, plops a Feldgriff deck on the table that she had built by herself out of stuff out of my collection during the day. As it turns out, she's been, like, listening to Monday Night Magic and Horde of Notions and other podcasts that she's just randomly, like, heard me mention or that I've been on, learning to play Magic and going online and learning how to play it just so she can play with me and my friends because she uh, she wanted to spend time with me and stuff like that. And it completely took me by surprise because she's been doing this all, like, independently of me and all this other stuff, and it flabbergasted to me. And by the way, she won that game by comboing out. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's pretty uh, awesome. She's yeah. She made infinite cat tokens and then just kind of giggled, and we were all like, "Oh, it was pretty cool." I have never successfully taught a girlfriend or my ex-wife to play magic, so oh, she's I, she's her own independent woman. <laughs> I've learned that this weekend. <laughs> yeah, I only met my boyfriend because I play magic because we were both at the same GP, and that's where we met. So. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Def- definitely. So, Sam, do you have a moment of geekery you wanted to share? Or? I mean, I guess that this week I introduced uh, a large portion of, well, I guess that's not a fair way to put it, but a large group of Magic players, we'll say, uh, to um, Seasons, the board game, and uh, the Board Game Arena website um, through Twitter and my stream. Um, and also learned how to play seasons and learned about the board game arena website. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it was sort of a journey you took with your with your viewers. Yeah. So, are you as big into board games as people like Randy Bueller are, or not quite that? Uh, much? I mean, I guess he's like officially bigger into it than I am, and he goes to like the you know world board game tournament thing, and I don't. But I mean, I think that a lot of that is because he can't play Magic competitively, so he looks for comp- other competitive outlets. Um, I, I, I am certainly a fan of board games. You know, I play them whenever I get the chance with people and stuff. And, uh, you know, I can talk for a long time about, you know, a number of board games and what I like and don't like in board gaming and board game design and what makes a good board game versus a bad board game and, like, why Lahav is badly developed and why Agrippa is amazing and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I, I would love to get into some more board games. Uh, it's a bit difficult around here. There's not too many people who play them, but... I've seen some stuff that really caught my attention, and I, I'm looking for a good place to start. People keep recommending Ticket to Ride as a, as a place to start. Yeah, that's a good, you know, lightish beginner-type board game. So, uh, I mean, I, 
you mentioned Randy Bueller can't play Magic competitively, and until recently, I didn't understand why. Because he's left Wizards a long time ago, but right. his wife works there still, doesn't she? That's, that is why he can't play, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, he would probably come back to the Pro Tour, I assume, <laughs> with yeah. everybody else being back on it. Right. If he was allowed to, or if she stops working there, or whatever. Yeah. Is he still subject to three years wait, I wonder, after she leaves? Or? I don't think it's three years. I don't know what their policy is right right now. I know that um, when I was looking at interning there, I was, like, asking, okay, so if I stop, like, what when will I be able to play again and could I play on the PT and like how would that work and they were like yeah we're reviewing the policy right now so we don't know what it would be then and I okay. didn't like hear any follow up on what it became or anything well I know Travis Wu was playing uh, at SCG Portland today yeah So and he hasn't been gone any more than about three four months so there's obviously been some sort of change because it used to be three years I know okay awesome um before we uh, wrap it up, let's just do some quick shout-outs, and then we will uh, let you go. No problem. And I forgot to mention my moment of geekery, which was uh, the fact that Will Wheaton has put a ping-pong ball up on eBay. It was put up about an hour and a half ago, and the current max bid is $1,080 for a dented ping-pong ball. Uh, he is it is giving $100 bills? <laughs> it is not. <laughs> and all of the funds he raises will go to charity, but still, someone is paying $1,080 for a dented ping pong ball. Did he autograph it? No. Although I dare say, <laughs> if the person who buys this asks for an autograph, they'll probably get one. <laughs> is it painted? Is there a story behind it? The link will be in the show notes, and no. <laughs> <laughs> just, just no. <laughs> it's just a dented ping pong ball. That's it. All right. Uh, Travis, shout out, sir. Oh, did you call me? <laughs> no, I said Travis. No. Sorry, I have my mic muted. Uh, first shout out to Kirk Dubay on uh, Twitter, Dube Snacks. His bill, Buffalo Bills lost today, and he needs some consoling. And shout out to Jacob Menard, uh, Grand Prix Columbus winner. The guy still only has less than 50 followers on Twitter, so let's see if we can help him out some. The Buffalo Bills, I presume, are some sort of hand egg team? Yes. <laughs> okay, just making sure. Oh, boy. <laughs> Adina, shout out. <laughs> In that vein, shout out to the Philadelphia Eagles because they won today. Barely. They tried everything they could to lose. They threw interceptions. They fumbled the ball. They played terrible. But at the end, they did manage to pull it out. So that was a great relief to me. Um, shout out to Martinet for hosting our website. Incidentally, Martinet is located in Philadelphia, as I will be at the end of the month if anyone is going to GP Philadelphia. Hint, hint, come say hi or tweet at me and let me know you're going to be there so I can look for you. Um, and uh, shout out to Card Kitty for the image that's on our website. And shout out to all of our Twitter followers because you guys are awesome. Interrupt. I'll be, be at GP Philly. Obviously. Oh. <laughs> I will see you there. <laughs> I, I was just about to say, like, no, interrupts went away a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> the last thing we need is a Tomagoyf with seven power. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jackson, shout out, sir. Uh, shout out, as always, to Tiff, Ra, and Sharoom in that order. Uh, shout out to all my fellow podcasting and or broadcasting associates, especially the boys at Jinx Idols, Monday Night Magic, the A-Team, and, of course, you folks, naturally. 
Um, and shout out to good old games and manybooks.net. Read your smucks? Read every single day, all day, or day. Excellent. So, Sam, you've seen where we're going. Have you got anybody you want to uh, shout out? Just anyone who's actually made it through listening to largely me for over two hours now. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be cut down to hour and 55. But all right. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm sure that's why people tuned in. I mean, we uh, our biggest episodes have been with pros, and we've had a lot of people asking us to have you on, so I'm sure they're all still there. All right. Well, uh, hi, Runu. Uh, tuned in to listen to me. Thanks. If you're listening to hear more from me, uh, you know, I stream pretty often, so you probably already know that, but check it out if you haven't uh, at Samuel H. Black, which is my name for like everything like my twitter account and stuff uh at twitch tv yeah definitely worth watching i can endorse that entirely and i will give a couple of quick shout outs uh to scotty mac carlos uh heather and becca who have been really supportive on twitter the past few days shout out to all of our listeners who've been with us for the past 49 and 9 tenths episodes uh it's unbelievable to me that this podcast has reached 50 shows there have been times when I thought it wouldn't see another one um, but I've enjoyed every second of it and I'm really glad uh, to still be here now saying thank you to all of you uh, Sam thanks so much for uh, doing this with us it's been a pleasure and we've learned a lot just listening to you talk about your process and the stuff that you've done thank you and uh, hopefully we can have you on again at some point to uh, talk to you as a Grand Prix slash Pro Talker <laughs> Uh, that'd be nice. I'm sure you wouldn't be complaining if that were the case. <laughs> no, if I if the trade off is I have to come on this podcast again, but it means that I get to win a Grand Prix Pro Tour, I'll take it for every event. That's the karma that you've earned by coming on our show. Well, you get to win a Pro it, Tour. If you win GP Philadelphia, then I will come up and interview you right there. All right, deal. Hey, <laughs> in, all, in all fairness, after we had Finkel on, he did top eight two Pro Tours in a row. And after we had Chapin on, he did uh, come second at GP Orlando. So th- there's a history. Here. Yeah, so I'll be the next person versus Brad Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, Will, shout out, sir. Generally, as you all know, I'm, you know, the lovable curmudgeon who's just not into shout outs. But actually, it is episode 50, and I've been here for 30 of them, not the first 20, but. Uh, I want to give a shout-out to every single person who's ever listened to any episode. Uh, it's awesome that you actually spend the time, you know, whether it's during at your job, uh, at night when you get home, whatever it is, listening to us, you know, rant and rave in some cases, mostly Chris's case, but, you know, some other cases as well. And uh, just, uh, you know, it's nice that you spend the time with us, and it's actually really fun to be able to do this. So a shout-out to you guys, and... Secondly, a shout out to Sam. Thank you very much for coming on. It's a, uh, it's a great privilege to have you uh, have you on the show. Shout out to KYT. And when are you ever lovable? Well, I I must have missed that. Uh, always. You didn't know. I'm no. I'm perfect, and everyone loves me. It's a great right. day. It's a great day being me at all times. You know why? Because he doesn't call judges and get game losses when his opponents don't show up for the match. That's why everybody loves him. <laughs> on that what do you note, do instead. Lose. <laughs> like, I, I don't know what the alternative is. Do you just like sit there until the round's over, and then a judge comes and is like, "Hey, can I have your slip?" And you're like, "Sorry, I haven't played yet." Like, I don't know what else you're supposed to do when you don't have an opponent. No, the story was that because uh, I was at uh, GP Boston, and for rounds seven and eight, I was 
far out of contention, and both times my opponents showed up late, five minutes late to the round. But rather than play, calling a judge, I was just like, it's round seven and eight. We're so far out of contention, it doesn't matter, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, so let's not call a judge. And sure enough, I lost both of those rounds. Okay. And he won game one in both instances. <laughs> just to make it worse. Sure. So bad. All right, so on that very embarrassing for Will note, let's wrap this baby up. So, deep breath for Travis, for Will, for Adina, for returning Jack, and for very special guest Sam, this is Chris saying join us again next time for another exciting episode of Horde of Notions. And outro. Outro.